The information on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a qualified licensed professional counselor or a qualified licensed medical provider. Hello and welcome back to another session of the Evolving Chair Podcast with your host, Lakeisha. Today I have a very special guest on the show today and he's actually kicking off my mental health within the Black Community Series. This is part one with Dr. Gaston. Do you want to say hi to the TC listeners? Hello, listeners. How are you? (laughs) He is such a phenomenal person. He is a professor, an author, a speaker, and dare I say a mental health advocate as well, just for the line of work he does. Would you agree? I would agree, yes. Awesome, awesome. And I will have... Dr. Gaston's bio attached to his picture on my website at theevolvingchair.com. So you guys can definitely take a look at that and see all of his work that he has done. And he's doing some great work. And just a shout out to him for being one of the 15 black male therapists you should know. Such a great honor. I'm very honored. I'm still humbled about that uh, opportunity. Yes, such a great thing. So I love to see that. Um, so before we get to it and dive all up and through the knowledge that he will be sharing with us today, I have an icebreaker for you. So, Dr. Gaston, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Uh, I, that's that's. Uh, I, I think it's funny when I uh, hear that question because I think about uh, myself as a little Dr. Gaston as a young little boy. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, from a young age, a very young age, I was drawn to ministry, uh, mm. preaching and singing. Uh, my family can tell you all sorts of funny stories of me uh, outside with a towel on my neck, sort of mocking <laughs> creatures who, you know, were apes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, with a spoon in my left hand, preaching like there was a full congregation before me. <laughs> and I would just let you have it. I don't know who I was talking to, but I was letting them have it. Yeah. And uh, uh, my aunt tells a story about uh, one time she took me to one of her prayer meetings. Mm-hmm. And she said that during, I do remember some of this, but not all of it. She said that uh, I got up during uh, their press session and walked over to one of the women that were there. Uh-huh. That was there, excuse me, laid hands on her and began prophesying and encouraging her. Wow. And my aunts and the other ladies were astonished because they said that what I was telling her was I didn't have any understanding of what I was saying to her, but it was personal, direct, and accurate. And so that... That, that other experience is really solidified for me at an early age. Uh, feeling of being involved in certain Now, it's funny that you mentioned that um, you would uh, minister and preach the gospel in your home. My son, Josiah, who's nine, he actually does that. <laughs> he will do it wherever, in the shower, in the kitchen. And, you know, he's going to be mad because I'm putting his business out there. But... <laughs> But he definitely is. I see. He ha- he definitely he has a heart to serve because he helps out at church and children's ministry with me, and he just loves it. So definitely. Oh, so are you a minister too, as well as a professor, or? Well, so um, you know that was the context. My family is and still was and still remains very religious. Religion and spirituality is very important to them. Mm-hmm. And I started preaching actually at the age of twelve, wow. which we could have some discussions about the pros and cons of that. Okay. Um, back over my life, um, and I went. I was 
set up uh, to go to Bible college. I did go to Bible college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after the first two years, uh, in a, you know, I had my own personal uh, metamorphosis taking place. And upon personal reflection, I began to realize that my calling and purpose as a healer uh, was beyond the scope of traditional ministry. Mm. Uh, that was my draw, really, actually, into the field of applied psychology. Like anxiety, depression, 
and post-traumatic stress disorder and phobia start to show up. Mm-hmm. And think about the hypothalamus, which uh, is responsible for regulating emotion, and it also is making. Uh, and Dr. Gaston, can you please explain to the listeners what does our brain and our body look like when we experience trauma? So trauma really has uh, an insidious uh, way of uh, negatively impacting us on a psychobiological uh, and neurological um, level or dimensions. Uh, There are three specific areas in the brain that are usually implicated uh, as um, stress responses uh, as we are trying to navigate uh, the impact of trauma or that are impacted by trauma. Uh, that would be the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. And it's important to think about and really to talk about these areas of the brain because each of these uh, brain areas are responsible for some high-tech, complex cognitive and emotional uh, information uh, and regulation. So just really quickly, the amygdala is uh, it's its key role is in the processing of emotion. So when uh, there's trauma uh, that uh, impacts the amygdala, all sorts of conditions like anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder and phobia start to show up. Mm-hmm. And think about the hypothalamus, which uh, is responsible for regulating emotion. And it also is making uh, spatial navigation. So this hippocampus, excuse me, uh, plays an important role in the learning process and the storing of information and also is responsible for behavioral inhibition. Mm. Um, so and trauma that is impacting uh, uh, an individual, uh, this uh, area uh, is compromised, this area of learning and storing information and of behavioral inhibition is really a compromise. And lastly, uh, uh, when we experience trauma, the prefrontal cortex is also impacted. And this is the area of the brain where complex behaviors, including planning uh, and personality development, are, are, are happening. Uh, so the prefrontal cortex uh, also functions to coordinate and adjust complex behavior. It focuses and organizes attention. It's in charge of complex planning. Uh, so you can see that when uh, men are uh, traumatized, mm-hmm. uh, and are attempting to navigate the stresses that are accompanying that uh, trauma, all types of uh, uh, neurological uh, impacts occur. And of course, uh, in addition to those neurological impacts, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, is another uh, disorder that uh, is uh, quite linked and associated with trauma as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a lot of men walking around uh, with undiagnosed PTSD or if not full-blown PTSD according to the PS according to the DSM-5 uh, criteria, they have uh, uh, components of, of that disorder. They have characteristics of that disorder that 
trauma tries to enter into um, a romantic relationship, what does that look like in terms of maybe like their thought processes, their behaviors, if they have not ever sought out services to resolve those traumatic experiences? Uh, well, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> and I know it varies for everybody, but you know, I'm thinking like if you can look back on like some of the clients you've dealt with and you know, Or being, are, are getting married because this is what 
men are supposed to do. This is a part of society rites of passage. But when you have a man who has unresolved trauma, whatever the trauma may be about, uh, you really do have uh, a man who is really emotionally distant, Mm -hmm. a man who is not present, uh, a man who is very free, uh, a low situation with one of my friends and you know um the guy she was dating he he went through um a very traumatic experience just as a a young boy um you know he he says it doesn't affect him but i feel like everything you've touched on you see the residue left of the trauma still with in their relationship they aren't together right now um because you know all of a sudden it was one of those things um where everything was too much and i think it, it was he entered the relationship just for me looking on the outside without having that hope that you said and being hopeful yeah and and, and not only that piece but something you just said that was very powerful in addition to that not having that hope i think what happens for lots of people regardless of gender and relationships if people go into relationships sometimes uh, cause people to run. Mm. Uh, and, and so that has to be taken into consideration. You know, as a man, why am I, you know, so anxious in this relationship? It's a good relationship. She's a good woman. She talks to me the healthiness in the relationship. I still have this anxiety and this fear. And some of that has to be support and, 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 uh, helping to, 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 to dig very deeply uh, to discover whether or not it, whether or not the emotional reality and closeness of the relationship is causing them anxiety because they don't feel like they have the capacity to sustain it or navigate. Mmm, that's some good stuff. That's really good. I'm gonna have to get you here in Milwaukee to do like a <laughs> a session with 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 all the men <laughs> in Milwaukee. You know, um, and, and and I just think you know that daily trauma that we experience here. Um, you know, just with like all the killings and things of that nature. You know, so uh, man, so much trauma. You know. Yeah, there, there's so much trauma, and, and you know, one of the things we don't talk about, or not many people talk about it like this, I also think that the socialization of gender for boys and girls, but mm-hmm. we talk specifically about men today, right. uh, that socialization process is also a form of trauma. Mm. Uh, and we don't often talk about patriarchy, male privilege, uh, or hypermasculinity, or gender role conflict 
that men uh, encounter as a form of trauma, but it is because the socialization process that boys go through as a consequence of patriarchy and male privilege takes away their uh, opportunity to help to tap into their femininity or mm -hmm. their feminine nature mm -hmm. or nurturing nature from an early age. Because we are socialized as boys from an early age not to feel. Mm. The only things that we are allowed to feel are rage, mm. anger, hostility. We are taught to see ourselves uh, just opposed to girls or to women. Mm -hmm. And in a very negative way, we have lots of psychological uh, weight that, that is put upon our, upon our gender as it relates to what we're responsible for and to. And so often... Times boys and, and, and men, uh, boys who grow up to be men, are often at a disadvantage uh, because they don't uh, haven't tapped into the language of love, the language of vulnerability, the language of emotional closeness in the same ways that girls are exposed to. Uh, and so that's a traumatic uh, uh, process. To that is another form of trauma. So we have this socialization process that often handicaps boys and men emotionally and spiritually and then you couple trauma that they may have encountered sexual trauma mm -hmm. black trauma right and who will ever know that they feel this way or that they've encountered that because they don't talk because we've been socialized not to talk about yeah. our stuff in general because that's not the masculine thing to do so you have a lot of boys and men walking around as emotional psychological zombies mm. who don't have a space or don't feel safe enough to really expose themselves and let it all hang out it is amazing to me how often uh men of varying ages that I treat mm -hmm. after a couple of sessions are in tears wow. because they find a space to talk about and articulate the, some of the things that I say to them they're like you know doc I can't say it like you say it but everything <laughs> you said yeah. I've been living it for the last 25 50 years wow. and they, they haven't had the space even in their own romantic relationships to come clean wow. and to heal Wow, that is so deep, and and, and and I mean, you of course you may not have the answer, but I'm I'm gonna ask, um, how do we create that safe space for them, like, you know? That's a very powerful question, and you know, we can answer that in very different in in, in different ways. So we can sort of look at it in a different perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that. Um, I think that what we need is a more men uh, of color in the field. Yes. Yeah. of color in the field. And women uh, of color who are interested in uh, really focusing uh, their clinical work and their healing work uh, on black men and men of color. Mm. And creating those... Uh, those contexts, whether it's group therapy, whether it's a psychoeducational group, whether it's a workshop, mm -hmm. men can feel safe to begin to think about things and deconstruct their lives in ways that they have never deconstructed their lives before. And given that safe space to process 
right? Mm -hmm. Whatever they need to process in their own way to get to the place of integration. I also think that we also need to use those institutions that are already erected in which uh, our uh, people, our, uh, our culture finds to be uh, a salient, like the black church. Okay. Black churches and black ministers uh, to be open to uh, the psychological dimension of of, of, of health, yeah. to be open to practitioners coming in uh, and helping them to integrate their spirituality and their spirit, spirituality, psychological issues, mm -hmm. uh, and being able to, uh, within the context of their language and perspective, help those men in those contexts to heal as well. Um, I, I think we also need to do be very proactive in the infant and toddler and preschool ages and mm -hmm. elementary ages so, uh, programs uh, uh, within those uh, educational contexts that really begin to help socialize boys in very different ways. What I mean by that is creating rites of passage programs that help boys to become more in their understanding of gender, mm -hmm. to become more uh, 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 flexible, mm -hmm. uh, to integrate uh, nurturing and emotional expression within their life and within their identity. So I think that we have to not only be uh, retroactive, uh, but we also have to start the work while boys are little boys and, and, and equip them with a new language uh, and new skills around emotional vulnerability and emotional intelligence. Yes. I love that. Very well said. I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. I may need to get some tips with from you because my population I primarily work with is children. I, I'm a school-based mental health therapist in an elementary school, and so you know, I, I think I'm, I'm in that battle with some of the boys because they don't want to tell me how they really feel. You know, so it's it's more superficial things that they're sharing, and it's kind of like it's deeper than that. <laughs> you know, but. How, how do I create, you know, allow them to know that it, it, it's okay to share. And, you know, many of them have started opening up just over time. And I think them understanding, okay, what you share with me stays between us. So yes. you can be as vulnerable as you need to be and it won't go past this door. Yes, absolutely. Keeping that safe space, articulating uh, your curiosity, uh, being, you know, direct with them about, uh, you know, uh, differences, you know, you know, I am a woman, and there are some things I may not get, and but I want you to tell me, right. you know, just like you would with a patient of a different race or ethnicity, the same type of skills around understanding their story, understanding their narrative, uh, and 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 trying to express to them uh, in an em empathetic way that this is their space and that what we're doing here is is not you know, attempting to change or, 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 you know, or to make you into something that you don't want to be, but we're trying to understand your story so that uh, you can become the best you that you wish to be. You know, so, I mean, and I think you're right, you know, regardless of whether the clinician is a male or a female, mm -hmm. uh, time has to pass. People have to start feeling safe. And they have to feel comfortable and when they feel safe and comfortable you know over time they will begin to expose different pieces of themselves yes 
definitely i love that um now it, it this is a cliche saying <laughs> men will be men um how do you equate trauma allowing men to be that stereotype you or you you, you get what i'm saying yeah, yeah, I do. I, you know, I was, you know, I was thinking about that question. And I was saying to myself, you know, everything we've been saying earlier has to be uh, the starting point to me. Yeah. Like this question has to be situated in a cultural context, mm. and again, it has to be situated in the sense of how we are socialized. Okay, now, Doctor Gasson, can you talk a little bit about? And, and I know it's so cliche, the statement of men will be men, but how, you know, trauma can allow a male to be the product of that. You know, that, that's a very good question uh, because it helps us to situate men in a cultural context. Uh, as I mentioned before, men are socialized from birth to take on normative and many times rigid ideas uh, and ways of being that are uh, scripted as what I would like to call male normative. We are taught to be competitive, that we are always right, not to voice your feelings of vulnerability. You can be angry and rageful, but not feelings of vulnerability. Uh, this socialization process is undergraded uh, by what I, uh, uh, well, what not just I, but many scholars have thought to be the system of patriarchy and male privilege that, you know, rewards and both harms men. We're rewarded uh, by status, right, and having the good perception of other men and women. Uh, but we're also harmed because this socialization process uh, often uh, uh, causes us to miss out on a deep mutuality mm -hmm. uh, with others that moves us beyond the roles that we play or the roles that have been ascribed to be masculine uh, to a place of full humanity. So we're not as men who uh, ingest or internalize these normative ways of being men, we often uh, are not only uh, not understood because we don't show up fully in our relationships, right, or vulnerable, and we don't show up with the real us, right. and we don't have understanding of the other because uh, that emotional closeness keeps us uh, uh, um, uh, split off from understanding the emotions or empathizing with the other at deep levels, right? Right. So I was, I was thinking about the study I conducted years ago uh, that found that men who experienced high levels of gender role conflict, that's that dissonance, which uh, is along the emotional, psychological, and relational dimensions, uh, the dissonance that men have which subscribe gender roles that they're taught on, uh, that they're taught from mm -hmm. very early on, uh, and they take on uh, that gender role conflict says that often men uh, experience dissonance about those internalized roles as they attempt to actually navigate those roles in real lived context. Mm. In other words, that the context in which they live oftentimes and the people in which they uh, have to be interpersonally connected to, uh, there's, a, there's a disconnect. Right? There's a mismatch between the realities of, of what the world uh, demands and what other people expect and the way in which we are socialized to think about ourselves as men. And my study concluded that men who had high levels of that gender role conflict, who just had this dissonance and anxiety and, and, and you know, had a hard time living up to uh, these uh, internalized 
idealized ways of being men also had high levels of hypermasculinity. Uh, and hypermasculinity is defined as those exaggerated uh, 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 compensatory ways of uh, relating, uh, stereotypically relating uh, to, uh, to others. Uh, so people, so men who have uh, that are high in hypermasculine attitudes and behaviors often exhibit these stereotypic gender displays of power and consequent suppression uh, of signs of vulnerability. And they often are men who are very callous, uh, uh, who have very callous sexual attitudes toward women. They often, you know, view dangerous events as exciting and uh, see violence as natural for men. And when I, when, when I give this definition, lots of men say, oh, that's not me. But when we really explore that hypermasculinity um, uh, on different levels, like you can have uh, different gradations of hypermasculinity, right? Mm-hmm. So some men are on a more extreme level of hypermasculinity where they are physically violent, uh, where they display this anger all the time. And then you have some men who are on the other extreme where they're very nice, <laughs> very quiet about what they're doing, but their behavior is, is still harmful, manipulative, uh, very closed off. They do things that uh, show that they're very emotionally closed off. They may be very manipulative in their relationships. Uh, they may be very, uh, they may do very, Uncle, what would 
Right. How did you internalize that? And, and you know, and not only you know, all, you know, obviously mothers also teach about what is you know right and what is wrong as well. So mm-hmm. even mothers, like, what did your mother tell you was your role um, in uh, the house, and what your role as a person would be related to your gender? And when I, you know, when men are talking, they often talk about the subtle. Uh, covert modeling mm. that they witnessed from both parents around what was acceptable f- uh, for them as boys and what was not acceptable. Of course, that 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 racial, but also that gender socialization. But they also talk about those explicit things that their fathers and mothers and uh, uh, authority figures told them uh, what, what that was acceptable or not acceptable for boys to do or not to do. And these men are carrying these things along with them, uh, and they get to be adults, and they find themselves having to navigate all of these different emotional and relational contexts that they don't feel equipped to navigate. And so if they don't feel equipped to navigate, they do a number of things. They either bow out. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do any of this. I'm not going to do, you know, I'm going to, or they fake the funk. Right. <laughs> they give as much as they need to give to make sure that people are satisfied <laughs> in some way, mm-hmm. right? Or you find some men who uh, who need multiple emotional stimulus. So you find men who are, you know, who have multiple partners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as a way to, to attempt to, to navigate uh, the dissonance and the anxiety that the internalization around gender has created. Plus, now you're talking about trauma. Now you're adding trauma onto that. And so you have all sorts of uh, things happening. Substance abuse, depression, anxiety, uh, 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 you know, gambling, shopping, mm-hmm. buying things, all these types of things, these compensatory behaviors uh, and actions as a way to decrease the anxiety of having to sit with the trauma and having to explore the trauma because it's too much. Right, wow. It feels like it's too much to try to navigate. Mm-hmm. Wow. So awesome, so awesome. I definitely want, if, if you're okay with it, I want to bring you back to, like, talk a little bit more just about this more in depth and maybe even doing something in Milwaukee where we can get you to come out. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that. I'm open to that. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Awesome, awesome. Um, before we end, I do want to highlight, you live by two quotes, and I really love them. Um, as I first read them, I was like, okay, I want to, hear your take on them so you live by where there's life there is hope and what you seek is already seeking you so can you kind of explain what do those two quotes mean to you and you know and just explain in a little detail about so yeah so hope is a primary part of my life Mm -hmm. um the hope for me isn't about wishful thinking uh for me it comes out of my spiritual and psychological framework When I talk about hope, I'm talking about tapping into my own divinity and power and intent for living. Mm -hmm. It's out of that understanding of my preferences, like the things that I know that I want and the things that I know that are my truth. Mm -hmm. It's out of my own power and my capacity that I go forth in life. 
so understanding that the more that I resolve those things that hinder me mm-hmm. from tapping into my power and my divinity and my intent, the more I'm able to manifest and live my real truth. That's what hope is for me. It's the power of my real self and truth to be lived out with intent, passion, and positive expectation. Mm. That's what hope is for me. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, that last quote, what you seek is already seeking you, it's from the philosopher Rumi. Mm. And uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Rumi, R-U-M-I. <laughs> and for me, that quote reminds me of the power, again, of intent and the law of attraction, which says that like attracts like. Mm. And that whatever you believe about yourself and the other, you attract it in your current reality, whether it's good or bad, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. That whatever we say yes to, with either by permission, by just letting it happen to us, or by our own assent, by, let, by saying this is what I want, is actually what we get back in our lived experiences. So for me, this quote reminds me on a daily basis that my most uh, powerful thought about myself and about others is what is going to seek me out and is going to manifest in my life mm-hmm. through me, around me, and as me. It reminds me of my creative power and my ability to align myself with what I really want, right? If I align my emotions and my expectations that what I believe I can manifest. And it also encourages me, lastly, to know that although uh, what I expect, right, what I've been visualizing maybe hasn't manifested in pure form yet, Mm -hmm. but if I continue with diligence to visualize it, to speak it, to work toward it with my own energy, that that and, and and also that I become what I'm asking for, not just want something, but the love that I want, I become love. The joy that I want, I become the joy. Mm-hmm. That that as I do this, uh, and I strengthen my intent toward whatever I'm expecting, that it must come to and through me. Mm. So whatever I'm seeking is already seeking me. Awesome. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I definitely love it. And I appreciate you, Dr. Gaston, taking the time out um, to be a special guest on the Evolving Chair podcast. And I'm going to hold you to that because I'm going to bring you back. <laughs> Absolutely. Ashe. Yes. Um, now, do you have a website that you want to tell the listeners? I mean, I'll, I'll have everything attached to my website, but, you know, if they want to get to you directly. Yeah, so my website, it's, it's uh, www.oshangadsdenphd.com. Uh, contact number 202-246-9998. I... Um, that in addition to uh, treating uh, patients, I also provide individual and organizational consultation and coaching uh, services, and I also do that virtually uh, by way of video conferencing uh, and phone conferences, uh, conferencing as well as in person. And I'm equipped uh, and trained uh, to help you uh, navigate and explore a number of topics. Uh, identity issues, work issues, transition issues, relational issues, you name it, uh, I am uh, able and willing uh, to help you uh, process those things in a most 
side as well. Uh, and we can talk about uh, your needs, uh, whether it's workshops, uh, seminars. I'm available uh, for all of those things. Awesome, awesome. All right, TEC listeners, thank you guys for joining in for another session of the Evolving Chair. And thank you to our special guest, Dr. Gaston. Thank you for having me, and I will be back if you have me back. Yes, I will. <laughs> Hey, TC listeners, thank you again for joining us for session six with Dr. Gaston. He was such a great and phenomenal guest. And like I mentioned, we will be having him back because we are cooking up some stuff. Now, I know you guys will enjoy. And thank you for tuning in to listen to part one of the Mental Within the Black Community series. So stay tuned because I have some great guests that will join me throughout the process of this series and let me know your feedback send me email at tcpodcast2017 send me a message on ig at tcpodcast or my facebook page the evolving chair podcast or on my twitter tcpodcast until next time peace